Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 2 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 2. Titchens addressed Miss Warnop. What hands your mother's got, he said. It isn't often one sees a woman with hands like that on a horse's mouth. Did you see how she pulled up? He was aware that all this while, from the roadside, the girl had been watching him with shining eyes, intently even, with fascination. I suppose you think that a mighty fine performance, she said. I didn't make a very good job of the girth, he said. Let's get off this road. Setting poor weak women in their places, Miss Wanup continued, soothing the horse like a man with a charm. I suppose you soothe women like that too. I pity your wife the English country male, and making a devoted vassal at sight of the handyman, the feudal system, all complete. Teachin said, Well, you know it'll make him all the better servant to you if he thinks you've friends in the know. The lower classes are like that. Let's get off this road. She said, You're in a mighty hurry to get behind the hedge. Are the police after us, or aren't they? Perhaps you were lying at breakfast to calm the hysterical nerves of a weak woman. I wasn't lying, he said, but I hate roads when there are field paths. That's a phobia like any woman, she exclaimed. She almost ran through the kissing gate and stood awaiting him. I suppose, she said, if you've stopped off the police with your high and mighty male ways, you think you've destroyed my romantic young dream. You haven't. I don't want the police after me. I believe I'd die if they put me in Wandsworth. I'm a coward. Oh, no, you aren't, he said but he was following his own train of thought, just as she wasn't in the least listening to him. I dare say you're a heroine, all right, not because you persevere in actions the consequences of which you fear, but I dare say you can touch pitch and not be defiled. Being too well brought up to interrupt, she waited till he had said all he wanted to say. Then she exclaimed, Let's settle the preliminaries. It's obvious Mother means us to see a great deal of you. You're going to be a mascot too, like your father. I suppose you think you are. You saved me from the police yesterday. You appear to have saved Mother's neck today. You appear too to be going to make twenty pounds profit on a horse deal. You say you will, and you seem to be that sort of a person. Twenty pounds is no end in a family like ours. Well then, you appear to be going to be the regular bel ami of the Wanup family. Teachin said, I hope not. Oh, I don't mean, she said, that you're going to rise to fame by making love to all the women of the one-up family. Besides, there's only me. But Mother will press you into all sorts of odd jobs, and there will always be a plate for you at the table. Don't shudder. I'm a regular good cook. Cuisine bourgeoise, of course. I learned under a real professed cook, though a drunkard. That meant I used to do half the cooking, and the family was particular. Eating people are. County councillors, half of them, and the like. "'So I know what men are.' She stopped and said good-naturedly, "'But do, for goodness sake, get it over. "'I'm sorry I was rude to you, "'but it is irritating to have to stand like a stuffed rabbit "'while a man is acting like a regular, admirable Crichton "'and cool and collected with the English country gentleman air and all.' Titchens winced. The young woman had come a little too near the knuckle "'of his wife's frequent denunciations of himself.' And she exclaimed, No, that's not fair. I'm an ungrateful pig. 
You didn't show a bit more side, really, than a capable workman must who's doing his job in the midst of a crowd of incapable duffers. But just get it out, will you? Just say once and for all that, you know the proper pompous manner. You are not without sympathy with our aims, but you disapprove, oh, immensely strongly, of our methods. It struck Teachens that the young woman was a good deal more interested in the cause of votes for women than he had given her credit for. He wasn't much in the mood for talking to young women, but it was with considerably more than the surface of his mind that he answered, I don't. I approve entirely of your methods, but your aims are idiotic. She said, You don't know, I suppose, that Gertie Wilson, who's in bed at our house, is wanted by the police not only for yesterday, but for putting explosives in a whole series of letter boxes. He said, I didn't, but it was a perfectly proper thing to do. She hasn't burned any of my letters, or I might be annoyed, but it wouldn't interfere with my approval. You don't think, she asked earnestly, that we, Mother and I, are likely to get heavy sentences for shielding her. It would be beastly bad luck on Mother, because she's an anti. I don't know about the sentence, Teachin said, but we'd better get the girl off your premises as soon as we can. She said, Oh, you'll help? He answered, Of course, your mother can't be incommoded. She's written the only novel that's been fit to read since the 18th century. She stopped and said earnestly, Look here, don't be one of those ignoble triflers who say the vote won't do women any good. Women have a rotten time. They do, really. If you'd seen what I've seen, I'm not talking through my hat. Her voice became quite deep. She had tears in her eyes. Poor women do, she said, little insignificant creatures. We've got to change the divorce laws. We've got to get better conditions. You couldn't stand it if you knew what I know. Her emotion vexed him, for it seemed to establish a sort of fraternal intimacy that he didn't at the moment want. Women do not show emotion except before their families. He said dryly, I dare say I shouldn't, but I don't know, so I can she said with deep disappointment, Oh, you are a beast, and I shall never beg your pardon for saying that. I don't believe you mean what you say, but merely to say it is heartless. This was another of the counts of Sylvia's indictments, and Teachens winced again. She explained, You don't know the case of the Pimlico Army clothing factory workers, or you wouldn't say the vote would be of no use to women. I know the case perfectly well, Teachin said. It came under my official notice, and I remember thinking that there never was a more signal instance of the uselessness of the vote to anyone. We can't be thinking of the same case, she said. We are, he answered. The Pimlico Army Clothing Factory is in the constituency of Westminster. The Under Secretary for War is member for Westminster. His majority at the last election was six hundred. The clothing factory employed 700 men at a shilling and sixpence an hour, all these men having votes in Westminster. The 700 men wrote to the under-secretary to say that if their screw wasn't raised to two bob, they'd vote solid against him at the next election. Miss Wannup said, Well then. So, Teachin said, the under-secretary had the 700 men at 18 pence fired and took on 700 women at 10 pence. What good did the vote do the 700 men? What good did a vote ever do anyone? Miss Warnop checked at that, and Teachens prevented her exposure of his fallacy by saying quickly, 
Now, if the 700 women, backed by all the other ill-used, sweated women of the country, had threatened the under-secretary, burned the pillar-boxes, and cut up all the golf-greens round his country house, they'd have had their wages raised to half a crown next week. That's the only straight method. It's the feudal system at work. Oh, but we couldn't cut up golf-greens, Miss Wannup said. At least the WSPU debated it the other day and decided that anything so unsporting would make us too unpopular. I was for it, personally. Teachens groaned. It's maddening, he said, to find women, as soon as they get in council, as muddle-headed and as afraid to face straight issues as men. You won't, by the by, the girl interrupted, be able to sell our horse tomorrow. You've forgotten that it will be Sunday. I shall have to go on Monday, then, Teachens said. The point about the feudal system. Just after lunch, and it was an admirable lunch of the cold lamb, new potatoes and mince sauce variety, the mince sauce made with white wine vinegar and as soft as kisses, the claret perfectly drinkable and the port much more than that, Mrs. Wannup having gone back to the late professor's wine merchants, Miss Wannup herself went to answer the telephone. The cottage had no doubts been a cheap one, for it was old, roomy and comfortable, but effort had no doubt too been lavished on its low rooms. The dining room had windows on each side and a beam across. The dining silver had been picked up at sales. The tumblers were old cut glass. On each side of the ingle was a grandfather's chair. The garden had red brick paths, sunflowers, hollyhocks and scarlet gladioli. There was nothing to it all, but the garden gate was well hung. To Teachens, all this meant effort. Here was a woman who, a few years ago, was penniless in the most miserable of circumstances, supporting life with the most exiguous of all implements. What effort hadn't it meant, and what effort didn't it mean? There was a boy at Eton. A senseless, but a gallant effort. Mrs. Wannup sat opposite him in the other grandfather's chair, an admirable hostess, an admirable lady full of spirit in dashes, but tired. As an old horse is tired that, taking three men to harness it in the stable-yard, starts out like a stallion, but soon drops to a jog-trot. The face tired, really, scarlet-cheeked with the good air, but seemed downward. She could sit there at ease, the plump hands covered with a black lace shawl, and descending on each side of her lap, as much at ease as any other Victorian great lady. But at lunch she had let drop that she had written for eight hours every day for the last four years, till that day, without missing a day. Today being Saturday, she had no leader to write. And my darling boy, she had said to him, I'm giving it to you. I'd give it to no other soul but your father's son, not even to... And she had named the name that she most respected. And that's the truth, she had added. Nevertheless... Even over lunch she had fallen into abstractions, heavily and deeply, and made fantastic misstatements, mostly about public affairs. It all meant a tremendous record. And there he sat, his coffee and port on a little table beside him, the house belonging to him. She said, My dearest boy, you've so much to do. Do you think you ought really to drive the girls to Plimsoll tonight? They're young and inconsiderate. Work comes first. Teachin said, it isn't the distance. You'll find that it is, she answered humorously. It's twenty miles beyond Tenderden. If you don't start till ten when the moon sets, you won't be back till five, even if you've no accidents. The horse is all right, though. 
teacher and said, Mrs. Wanup, I ought to tell you that your daughter and I are being talked about, uglily. She turned her head to him rather stiffly, but she was only coming out of an abstraction. Eh, she said, and then, oh, about the golf links episode. It must have looked suspicious. I dare say you made a fuss too with the police to head them off her. She remained pondering for a moment heavily, like an old pope. Oh, you'll live it down, she said. I ought to tell you, he persisted, that it's more serious than you think. I fancy I ought not to be here. Not here, she exclaimed. Why, where else in the world should you be? You don't get on with your wife, I know. She's a regular wrong un. Who else could look after you as well as Valentine and I? In the acuteness of that pang, for... After all, Tichens cared more for his wife's reputation than for any other factor in a complicated world. Tichens asked rather sharply why Mrs. Wanup had called Sylvia a wrong un. She said in rather a protesting, sleepy way, My dear boy, nothing. I've guessed that there are differences between you. Give me credit for some perception. Then, as you're perfectly obviously a right un, she must be a wrong un. That's all, I assure you. In his relief, Tichens' obstinacy revived. He liked this house. He liked this atmosphere. He liked the frugality, the choice of furniture, the way the light fell from window to window, the weariness after hard work, the affection of mother and daughter, the affection, indeed, that they both had for himself, and he was determined, if he could help it, not to damage the reputation of the daughter of the house. Decent men, he held, don't do such things, and he recounted with some care the heads of the conversation he had had with General Campion in the dressing room. He seemed to see the cracked washbowls in their scrubbed oak settings. Mrs. Wanup's face seemed to grow greyer, more aquiline, a little resentful. She nodded from time to time, either to denote attention or else in sheer drowsiness. My dear boy, she said at last, it's pretty damnable to have such things said about you. I can see that. But I seem to have lived in a bath of scandal all my life. Every woman who has reached my age has that feeling. Now it doesn't seem to matter. She really nodded nearly off. Then she started. I don't see. I really don't see how I can help you as to your reputation. I'd do it if I could, believe me. But I've other things to think of. I've this house to keep going and the children to keep fed and at school. I can't give all the thought I ought to to other people's troubles. She started into wakefulness and right out of her chair. But what a beast I am, she said with a sudden intonation that was exactly that of her daughter and drifting with a Victorian majesty of shawl and long skirt behind Tichin's high-backed chair, she leant over it and stroked the hair on his right temple. My dear boy, she said, life's a bitter thing. I'm an old novelist and know it. There you are working yourself to death to save the nation with a wilderness of cats and monkeys howling and squalling your personal reputation away. It was Dizzy himself said these words to me at one of our receptions. Here I am, Mrs. Wanup, he said, and... She drifted for a moment, but she made another effort. My dear boy, she whispered, bending down her head to get it near his ear. My dear boy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. You'll live it down. The only thing that matters is to do good work. Believe an old woman that has lived very hard. Hard-lying money, as they call it in the Navy. It sounds like cant, but it's the only real truth. 
you'll find consolation in that, and you'll live it all down. Or perhaps you won't. That's for God and his mercy to settle. But it won't matter, believe me. As thy day, so shall thy strength be. She drifted into other thoughts. She was much perturbed over the plot of a new novel and much wanted to get back to the consideration of it. She stood gazing at the photograph, very faded, of her husband in side whiskers and an immense shirt front, but she continued to stroke Teachin's temple with a subliminal tenderness. This kept Teachin sitting there. He was quite aware that he had tears in his eyes. This was almost too much tenderness to bear, and at bottom his was a perfectly direct, simple and sentimental soul. He always had bedewed eyes at the theatre, after tender love scenes, and so avoided the theatre. He asked himself twice whether he should or shouldn't make another effort, though it was almost beyond him. He wanted to sit still. The stroking stopped. He scrambled onto his feet. Mrs. Warnop, he said, facing her, it's perfectly true. I oughtn't to care what these swines say about me, but I do. I'll reflect about what you say till I get it into my system. She said, yes, yes, my dear, and continued to gaze at the photograph. But, Teachin said, he took her mittened hand and led her back to her chair. What I'm concerned for at the moment is not my reputation, but your daughter Valentine's. She sank down into the high chair, balloon-like, and came to rest. Val's reputation, she said. Oh, you mean they'll be striking her off their visiting list? It hadn't struck me, so they will. She remained lost in reflection for a long time. Valentine was in the room, laughing a little. She had been giving the handyman his dinner, and was still amused at his commendations of Teachin's. You've got one admirer, she said to Teachin's. Punch that rotten strap, he goes on saying, like a great old yaffle punch in a hollow log. He's had a pint of beer and said it between each gasp. She continued to narrate the quaintness of Joel, which appealed to her, informed Teachens that yaffle was Kentish for great green woodpecker, and then said, You haven't got any friends in Germany, have you? She was beginning to clear the table. Teachens said, Yes, my wife's in Germany, at a place called Lobshid. She placed a pile of plates on a black japanned tray. I'm so sorry, she said, without an expression of any deep regret. It's the ingenious, clever stupidities of the telephone. I've got a telegraph message for you, then. I thought it was the subject for Mother's Leader. It always comes through with the initials of the paper, which are not unlike Teachin's, and the girl who always sends it is called Hopside. It seemed rather inscrutable, but I took it to have to do with German politics, and I thought Mother would understand it. You're not both asleep, are you? Teachens opened his eyes. The girl was standing over him, having approached from the table. She was holding out a slip of paper on which she had transcribed the message. She appeared all out of drawing, and the letters of the message ran together. The message was, Righto! But arrange for certain hollow central travels with you, Sylvia Hopside, Germany. Teachens leant back for a long time, looking at the words. They seemed meaningless. The girl placed the paper on his knee and went back to the table. He imagined the girl wrestling with these incomprehensibilities on the telephone. Of course, if I'd had any sense, the girl said, I should have known it couldn't have been Mother's leader note. She never gets one on a Saturday. Titchens heard himself announce clearly, loudly, and, with between each word, a pause. 
It means I go to my wife on Saturday and take her maid with me. Lucky you, the girl said. I wish I was you. I've never been in the fatherland of Goethe and Rosa Luxemburg. She went off with her great trayload, the tablecloth over her forearm. He was dimly aware that she had, before then, removed the crumbs with a crumb brush. It was extraordinary with what swiftness she worked, talking all the time. That was what domestic service had done for her. An ordinary young lady would have taken twice the time and would certainly have dropped half her words if she had tried to talk. Efficiency. He had only just realised that he was going back to Sylvia and, of course, to hell. Certainly it was hell. If a malignant and skilful devil, though the devil, of course, is stupid and uses toys like fireworks and sulphur, it is probably only God who can very properly devise the long ailings of mental oppressions. If God, then, desired, and one couldn't object, but one hoped he would not, to devise for him, Christopher teaches, a cavernous eternity of weary hopelessness, but he had done it, no doubt, as retribution. What for? Who knows what sins of his own are heavily punishable in the eyes of God, for God is just. Perhaps God, then, after all, visits thus heavily sexual offences. There came back into his mind, burnt in, the image of their breakfast room, with all the brass, electrical fixings, poachers, toasters, grillers, kettle heaters, that he detested for their imbecile inefficiency, with gross piles of hothouse flowers that he detested for their exotic waxenness, with white enamelled panels that he disliked and framed weak prints, quite genuine, of course, my dear, guaranteed so by Sotheby, pinkish women in sham Gainsborough hats selling mackerel or brooms, a wedding present that he despised, and Mrs. Thatterthwaite in negligee but with an immense hat reading the Times with an eternal rustle of leaves because she never could settle down to any one page, and Sylvia walking up and down because she could not sit still with a piece of toast in her fingers or her hands behind her back. Very tall, fair, as graceful, as full of blood, and as cruel as the usual degenerate Derby winner, inbred for generations, for one purpose, to madden men of one type, pacing backwards and forwards, exclaiming, I'm bored, bored, sometimes even breaking the breakfast plates, and talking, forever talking, usually cleverly with imbecility, with maddening inaccuracy, with wicked penetration, and clamouring to be contradicted, a gentleman has to answer his wife's questions. And in his forehead the continual pressure, the determination to sit put, the decor of the room seeming to burn into his mind. It was there, shadowy before him now, and the pressure upon his forehead. Mrs. Wanop was talking to him now. He did not know what she said. He never knew afterwards what he had answered. God, he said within himself, if it's sexual sins God punishes, he indeed is just and inscrutable. Because he had had physical contact with this woman before he married her in a railway carriage coming down from the Dukeries, an extravagantly beautiful girl. Where was the physical attraction of her gone to now? irresistible, reclining back as the shires rushed past. His mind said that she had lured him on. His intellect put the idea from him. No gentleman thinks such things of his wife. No gentleman thinks... 
By God, she must have been with child by another man. He had been fighting the conviction down all the last four months. He knew now that he had been fighting the conviction all the last four months whilst anaesthetised he had bathed in figures and wave theories. Her last words had been, her very last words, late. All in white she had gone up to her dressing room and he had never seen her again. Her last words had been about the child. Supposing she had begun, he didn't remember the rest. But he remembered her eyes and her gesture as she peeled off her long white gloves. He was looking at Mrs. Wanup's ingle. He thought it a mistake in taste, really, to leave logs in an ingle during the summer. But then what are you to do with an ingle in summer? In Yorkshire cottages they shut the ingles up with painted doors, but that is stuffy too. He said to himself, By God, I've had a stroke. And he got out of his chair to test his legs. But he hadn't had a stroke. It must then, he thought, be that the pain of his last consideration must be too great for his mind to register, as certain great physical pains go unperceived. Nerves, like weighing machines, can't register more than a certain amount, then they go out of action. A tramp who had had his leg cut off by a train had told him that he had tried to get up, feeling nothing at all. The pain comes back, though. He said to Mrs. Wanup, who was still talking, I beg your pardon, I really missed what you said. Mrs. Wanup said, I was saying that that's the best thing I can do for you. He said, I'm really very sorry. It was that that I missed. I'm a little in trouble, you know. She said, I know, I know. The mind wanders, but I wish you'd listen. I've got to go to work, so have you. I said, after tea, you and Valentine will walk into Rye to fetch your luggage. Straining his intelligence, for in his mind he felt a sudden strong pleasure. Sunlight on pyramidal red roof in the distance, themselves descending in a long diagonal, a green hill. God, yes, he wanted open air. Tichin said, I see. You take us both under your protection. You'll bluff it out. Mrs. Wanup said rather coolly, I don't know about you both. It's you I'm taking under my protection. It's your phrase. As for Valentine, she's made her bed. She must lie on it. I've told you all that already. I can't go over it again. She paused, then made another effort. It's disagreeable, she said, to be cut off the Mount B visiting list. They give amusing parties. But I'm too old to care, and they'll miss my conversations more than I do theirs. Of course I back my daughter against the cats and monkeys. Of course I back Valentine through thick and thin. I'd back her if she lived with a married man or had illegitimate children. But I don't approve. I don't approve of the suffragettes. I despise their aims. I detest their methods. I don't think young girls ought to talk to strange men. Valentine spoke to you, and look at the worry it has caused you. I disapprove. I'm a woman, but I've made my own way. Other women could do it if they liked or had the energy. I disapprove, but don't believe that I will ever go back on any suffragette, individual, in gangs, my Valentine or any other. Don't believe that I will ever say a word against them that's to be repeated. You won't repeat them, or that I will ever write a word against them. No, I'm a woman, and I stand by my sex. She got up energetically. I must go and write my novel, she said. I've Monday's instalment to send off by train tonight. You'll go into my study. Valentine will give you paper, ink, twelve different kinds of nibs. You'll find Professor Wanup's books all round the room. 
You'll have to put up with Valentine typing in the alcove. I've got two serials running, one typed, the other in manuscript. Tichin said, but you... I, she exclaimed, I shall write in my bedroom on my knee. I'm a woman and can. You're a man and have to have a padded chair and sanctuary. You feel fit to work? Then you've got till five. Valentine will get tea then. At half past five you'll set off to Rye. You'll be back with your luggage and your friend and your friend's luggage at seven. She silenced him imperiously with, Don't be foolish. Your friend will certainly prefer this house and Valentine's cooking to the pub and the pub's cooking, and he'll save on it. It's no extra trouble. I suppose your friend won't inform against that wretched little suffragette girl upstairs? She paused and said, You're sure you can do your work in the time and drive Valentine and her to that place? Why, it's necessary is that the girl daren't travel by train and we've relations there who've never been connected with the suffragettes. The girl can live hid there for a bit, but sooner than you shouldn't finish your work, I'd drive them myself. She silenced Tichin again, this time sharply. I tell you, it's no extra trouble. Valentine and I always make our own beds. We don't like servants among our intimate things. We can get three times as much help in the neighbourhood as we want. We're liked here. The extra work you give will be met by extra help. We can have servants if we wanted, but Valentine and I like to be alone in the house together at night. We're very fond of each other. She walked to the door and then drifted back to say, You know, I can't get out of my head that unfortunate woman and her husband. We must all do what we can for them. Then she started and exclaimed, But good heaven, I'm keeping you from your work. The study's in there, through that door. She hurried through the other doorway and no doubt along a passage, calling out, Valentine, Valentine, go to Christopher in the study, at once, at... Her voice died away. End of part one, chapter six, section two.